Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Good morning. How are you this morning? It's great to see you. I see many faces that I do know, and I see some faces that I don't know. So I'm glad to meet you if I don't know you after we get done, provided what I say this morning is such that you still want to meet me, right? So uh, we shall see how that goes. Um, You have come this morning, and we are continuing our series in the book of Daniel with Daniel chapter 4. Five, Daniel thriving in exile. And I frequently tell our lead pastor, Joel, that only a fool would choose to do the book of Revelation, followed by the book of Song of Songs, followed by the book of Daniel, because those are some of the toughest, toughest books in all of Scripture to understand. But I hope as we leave this morning that we'll have a bit of an understanding, not simply what Daniel's about, but what Daniel's saying to us this morning morning. So we're going to continue in Daniel chapter 5, and I want to read, say, the first 12 verses. I won't read the whole chapter. That's a lot for you to listen to early on. Uh, I hope we'll get through most of it by the end of this morning. So if you are able and could with me, would you stand in honor of reading God's Word? And I'm actually going to back up one verse and set the stage with Uh, chapter 4, verse 37. This is what the Holy Spirit says to us today. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in, and just to emphasize where these vessels have come from, he says, the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king And his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together." The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its uh, its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. 
Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. They were confused. The queen, or as I think it should be, the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to solve or to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Will you pray with me? O Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us today. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you today, our rock and redeemer. And this morning, God, grant that we may desire you and desiring you, seek you and seeking you, may we find you and finding you be satisfied in you alone forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great things about living in England is the ability to travel just a few minutes away and be in touch with history because you get close to ruins that the Roman Empire had around you or so on. One of our favorite places to go in England was a place called Annick Castle, A-L-N-W-I-C-K. We liked it so much that we named one of our cats Annick, though you wouldn't know that if you went to the vet because they always say, can somebody talk about Alnwick for you? Um, but we loved Annick because, well... We loved it because it was the scene of some of the first Harry Potter movies, right? And so as you go in, you can put on the robes and pretend that you're in Hogwarts and that you're part of Slytherin House or whatever. And oftentimes you could ride a broomstick, you know, and they could show you what it's like to be in Harry Potter. And then beyond that, you could um, go in the very back in the kids area and there was a medieval carnival and you could dress in robes and be princes and princesses and so on, see the dragons and play ring toss because they had those in medieval carnivals as well. But my favorite thing to do was to go into the haunted house because, you know, that's what you do at a medieval carnival. You go in the haunted house and uh, the scariest part of the house was the hall of mirrors because you would go through and you would look at a mirror and all of a sudden you're incredibly tall and then you turn around and you're incredibly short and then you turn around and you're humongous and then you turn around and you're very thin and it's very scary, right? Um, and then they would put mirror upon mirror and you could look down the hallway and it's as if you would never end and that's a really scary thought that you would never end. And what they do is right around the corner from the mirror is where they put the lone skeleton, right? out in the open, bright lights. They're not trying to scare you, but it becomes very scary because you're hit with a distortion of reality and you turn around and the very first thing you see is something that's meant to scare you. I think something similar is actually going on in the book of Daniel. See, that's what makes Daniel so difficult. It's such a hard book 
to make sense of. We begin in chapter one and we've got a king named Jehoiachin and then we go on to a king named Nebuchadnezzar and now we have Belshazzar that just appears out of nowhere in this scene in chapter five. And then we go to Darius and finally to Cyrus. And it's like, what's holding all this together? Beyond that, the first six chapters are narratives. They're stories about this man named Daniel and his Jewish friends. And then we get to seven through 12 And we have all of these different revelations, this apocalyptic literature where God is telling us, this is what will happen. What's holding these different kings and actions and statements together? Well, I think that's where the act of confession comes in, in the book of Daniel. Notice in Daniel chapter two, you don't have to turn there, just let me read it for you. Daniel begins the confession, not surprisingly, right? Because he's the Jew in the book. He's going to make the right confession. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Somehow, some way, Daniel confesses God is behind all of these kingdoms. And yet he's trapped in a kingdom that doesn't uh, follow after God. Then in chapter four, at the very beginning, we see Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king of all people, who says, how great are the signs of the most high God. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar gets it, but he doesn't. And he's forced into exile. And yet at the end of chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever because his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And that, friends, is the only phrase that's repeated in such this way again in chapter 7 to 12. Right at the very beginning in chapter 7, we're told, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That in of itself is a great message for Daniel, but it gets even better or stranger, right? Look at the end of chapter 7, verse 27. And the kingdom and dominions and greatness of the kingdoms shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Somehow, someway, in God's mysterious outworking of this world, the kingdom of God becomes also the kingdom of his people. And in Daniel 5 and Daniel 6, I think we see the transition of what makes up the saints of God, the characteristics that Daniel and his friends will show that a king like Belshazzar never will. And it's not a new message. It's not one that we haven't heard before and won't ever be repeated again because it was on the lips of Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees, When the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or it's over there. 
For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I think that's what Daniel wants us to get. That regardless of the kingdom that surrounds us tangibly, the kingdom of God is in the midst of God's people and how they live. Because this kingdom of Belshazzar is not going to last very long. In fact, I think the party at the beginning is a party that he's saying, maybe, just maybe, if I can convince enough people, Cyrus won't come and take this away from us. But then in 539, Cyrus does just that. He comes and the kingdom falls. No more is there the kingdom of Babylon. There's only the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And in the midst of all of this confusion, all of this, up, uh, this uprooting and craziness, Daniel gives us a clue in verse 37 of chapter four as to what for him is the foundation of God's kingdom. Through the mouth of one who has come into the kingdom from outside. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In God's kingdom, the foundation for his people is humility. Humility. Now, we're going to talk about humility because I think we get some clues as to what it is in the rest of Daniel chapter 5, but it's a notoriously difficult word to define because we often think of it only in the form of what it's not. Maybe it's not pride or not thinking highly of myself or something like that. This is how the Oxford English Dictionary defines humility. The quality of being humble or having a lowly opinion of oneself. Now, I'm just going to stop right there because how many times do we say you don't define a word by the word, right? So can we really say that, you, amen, that's right. I didn't think that was the part that was going to get it this morning, but whatever, we'll go with it. Uh, you don't define a word by the word. You can't just say humility is the act of being humility or act of being humble, right? Humility is having it. So what I want to do is I want to press in against Oxford, tell them they don't have a grip on everything, and let's figure out what Daniel would have us to think humility is. And the first thing I think we see, we're not going to go straight down through the passage. I'm going to skip around because I think there's an order to what I'm saying. But the first thing is that humility recognizes God is present and demands a total response. Look down at Daniel chapter 5, verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whomever he would, he humbled. Notice what he says. But when his heart was lifted up, when his heart was brought high, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, sounds a lot like Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 3, doesn't it? He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was set with the dew of heaven until he knew until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, 
have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, wives, and concubines have drunk wine from them, praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see and do not hear and do not know. But the God in whose hand is your very breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. The book of Daniel in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, picks up the narrative of what was to happen with the people of Israel after they go into exile. In the Hebrew Bible, the prophets come right after the law, and we only get to Daniel after we hear all of the prophets' message, turn and repent, right? It's when we get to Daniel that we see what life was like on a daily basis in the kingdom. And the very first book of that third section of the Hebrew Bible is the book of Psalms, because the Psalms were the prayer book of God's people, even in the midst of exile. And Daniel is reflecting on those Psalms. Psalm 94, verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. Psalm 139, verse 3, from afar, God, you know my thoughts. The New Testament writers will pick this up and will use phrases like, God the Lord has drawn near. He's here among us. Where people are gathered, he's here. Where people are not gathered, he's here. He is always here, and he knows even your hearts. God is present, but we move along with our lives, and often when we forget his presence around us, we act like he's not present at all. We make other things in our lives to be God in his place. If I could just get this job, things would be much better. If I could just get this promotion, I could work better hours. If I could just have this new thing, my life would be complete. Sometimes we even put other persons in the place of God, our spouses, our children. But if God is present here and now, we have to deal with that. We have to deal with that because our spiritual lives are not hobbies. Your spiritual life is not a hobby. As we will see in Daniel 5, reverence to God is a matter of life and death. At the name of Jesus, knees will bow or they will die. This is not a hobby. Second thing I want you to see is I do think in Oxford's definition, there is something of defining humility by what it's not, right? <laughs> Pride that is opposite of humility is the desire to be my own God and to control other people and other things to my own ends. Look in Daniel chapter five, verses 13 and following. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles in Judah, of whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. 
Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, I want to say that humility is not, uh, or sorry, it's not pride to be excited about doing well the things that you do best, right? We are God's creatures created in his image to show the world that our God is a creating God. And he has given us gifts by which we can show that world God's glory and bring about peace amongst God's people, a life full and happy and flourishing. God wants that from us. I think this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 12 when he says, present yourselves a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. I don't think he's talking about something extra that we would do. It's just our ordinary, everyday life, going about the things that we're supposed to be going about and doing it for the glory of God. In our everyday, ordinary lives, as God's creatures, we give him glory as our creator. And yet I do think there is a pride that humility is the opposite of. Notice what Belshazzar has done throughout Daniel 5. He takes the vessels from the house of God's temple and uses it in his mock feast to eat bread and drink wine in a way that brings dishonor to God. I think we're supposed to see in this something different than what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. And other Christian churches do when they eat bread and drink wine for God's glory to proclaim his death until he comes. Belshazzar says, I'm going to do this my way and use this for my ends. Beyond that, he's so condescending to Daniel, isn't he? Notice what he says. Well, I've heard that you can do this. Belshazzar knows full well that Daniel can do this. His own mom had told him, look, Daniel's going to do this. He's already done it. But he says over and over, I've heard, maybe, perhaps, you can do this. The pride that is against humility is the one that seeks to be our own God, to be in control of others and other things and turn them towards our own purposes as if we were in control to begin with. Number three, I think humility and humiliations are two distinct concepts that we often relate and are not necessarily related. For this, I want to go to Daniel uh, verse 24 and 25. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Daniel says. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and, be, and shall be given to the Medes and the Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, this is a strange passage. Mene, mene, tekel, parson, right? We, we get that a lot, don't we? Let me see if I can give you what I think he's saying here. Uh, I think what Daniel's doing is just playing on the words, which was often a strategy for finding meaning in Hebrew and Aramaic. So the Aramaic word mene sounds an awful lot like the Aramaic word for numbering. The Aramaic word for tekel sounds like weighing and Paris like dividing. And so he's saying, yes, this word is here. This is what is happening. And beyond that, Paris sounds an awful lot like the kingdom that's coming to take it away from you, doesn't it? Persia. But even beyond that, it's not surprising that God chooses to use the handwriting on the wall. We've been prepped for that in the previous chapter. Chapter four, verse 35, in the very mouths of Nebuchadnezzar, mouth. He doesn't have more than one. Very mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, this most high God, none can stay his hand. His hand can do whatever it wants. And his hand has written this on the wall for your destruction. But I love scripture. I love how it plays with us and toys with us and gives us riddles to discover. Uh, my favorite and I've got to share it with you because it's my favorite in this chapter, um, has, is similar to this interpretation. In verse 6, our English Bibles are quite muted. His limbs gave way. His limbs gave way. We're not really sure what to do with that. Maybe he fell, whatever. The Aramaic says his, the joint of his loins were loosened. What a great phrase. The joints of his loins were loosened. You know what that means? He wet himself. This hand shows up and he's done at this point, right? But notice what the writer does. He tells us something negative like that, some humiliation to Belshazzar can be positive in God's kingdom because the very way Daniel's described is one who solves problems. We might translate, translate that he loosens riddles. It's the very same word sent negatively to Belshazzar and positively to Daniel because God's hand will do whatever it will. You see, humiliations like those of Belshazzar don't necessarily lead to humility. He was not a humble man and it cost him his life, the ultimate of humiliation the fact we cannot keep ourselves alive any longer than God plans. But humility, on the other hand, should prepare us to deal with humiliations in grace. Words that are spoken against us, jobs that we've lost innocently, whatever the case may be, you will suffer humiliation. And this shouldn't surprise us for our Lord Jesus suffered. And Paul says, it's through that suffering you might attain the resurrection of the dead. But let me, let me just offer a word of wisdom here. 
Woe to you if you are in God's kingdom and you are the agent of the humiliation for someone. I'll have a little bit to say about tongue and speech here in a moment, but woe to you if you bring about the humiliation on one whose image is that of God. We'll go to the next point now. Number four, humility exists where self-love does not. Where self-concern consumes us, we destroy ourselves. Listen to 5, 22 and 23. You, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar, concerned about himself, love for his own kingdom, and he was humbled in the ultimate way, in death. And the message to us is that we will be too. Pride comes before the fall. Woe to the fall that leads to death. That's my own little rendering on that. Doesn't say that, but I think it's true. And in our culture, we're programmed to think about ourselves from the very first day we draw our breath. We're programmed to consider ourselves as individuals more important than any group we belong to or team that we're on or even other members in our own family. And yet in God's kingdom, we focus on the good of everyone, the flourishing and love of everyone What Aristotle used to call the common good is what Christians are about. What is it that Jesus says? If you want to save your life, you give it up. You give it to others. No ifs, ands, or buts. You take up your cross and you follow me. Now, to be fair, my last point doesn't come from Daniel 5 itself, but it flows off of this. And I think we see it in Daniel. Humility is the glue that holds all of our relationships together. It's the glue of our relationships. In Daniel 1, humility before the very law of God told Daniel and his friends that they could not eat the king's food. In Daniel chapter 3, Humility before the worship of God told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they could not bow the knee to an idol. In Daniel chapter 6, we'll see as the series continues, it's humility that tells Daniel to go into his room. And even though the law of the Medes and Persians says you can't pray to any other God, you must still pray to God. Coincidentally, Jesus also reflects on this. Go into your inner room and pray. And the God who knows what you need before you even say it will hear you. Humility is the glue. It's the foundation to all of our communities, to all of our families, for all of our friendships, and for all of our love, one to another. So, have we, have we left ourselves in a better place than Oxford English Dictionary? This is my, this is the, the cliff definition of humility. And here it is. It's focused on how we see things. Humility puts us in touch with reality 
in its full. And that reality is that life is not about me. Life is about God, full stop. Today, it's not about me, it's about God. This afternoon, still about God. Tomorrow, next week, following year, it's about God. It's not about me. It doesn't matter what kingdom we find ourselves in, whether the Babylonian or the Persian or the American kingdom. It's about God. And just like those carnival mirrors that distorted reality before I saw what came next, we have to have a proper view, not a distorted one, of what God is doing. And that's growing you in humility because only the humble will see God. Only the humble will inherit God's kingdom. This is what Jesus tells us at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So let me end with some concluding challenges for you to say, I want to work on this because I kind of want to be in God's kingdom. Number one, let God be God. It's pretty simple, straightforward, but let God be God. Life is not entirely in our own hands. I don't control every aspect of my life. And it's when I deceive myself and I fool myself into thinking that I do control my life, that's when I find myself being frustrated and grumbling and arguing and saying things that should never come out of my mouth. I'm fully aware that this is the last Sunday because of what we have planned for next week, that you are going to hear a message from one of your pastors before November the 3rd, which happens to be election day. And uh, let me just say that if God can convert Nebuchadnezzar, it does not matter who is in our White House. It can be a Republican in the White House it can be a Democrat in the White House. It can be someone from the Green Party in the White House or the American Solidarity Party or no party at all. Like it's possible, right? And what God cares about more is not who's sitting on Pennsylvania Avenue come next year, but what you put on Facebook tomorrow. And what you say to somebody of a differing perspective this afternoon. Guard your hearts and guard your tongues. For if you do not do that, you will not be humble and you will die. God cares about you more than he cares about who our president is done. Number two, remember, in light of that, God is always going to be working on you. Thankfully, he's always working on me and he'll always be working on you. Conversion, we use that word when we talk about coming to Christ, but conversion is not an event. Conversion is a process. 
It's a way of life, allowing God to constantly form our souls. And humility is the soil in which happiness grows. Not happiness in fluffy ways, but happiness in the way that the psalmist reflects on it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners or stand in scoffers and sit in the way of the wicked. But his delight, his his, I can't even talk. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And Jesus picks up that same thing and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will inherit the kingdom of God. In light of that, let God use others to work on you and to transform you. Let God use others to do that. And not simply others in this room, but God's big enough to use others outside of this room, isn't he? Listen to your boss without grumbling because you disagree with him or her. Put another person in your family first without having some motive for what they might choose. Oh, if I could just get them to choose this, this sounds good. No, that's controlling, isn't it? Take counsel from a friend without retaliation. The counsel of our friends can hurt, but they're friends. They're meant to bring us more into the image of Christ. You see, God's kingdom cares more about these relationships than it does about being right. Don't lose the relationships because you've got to be right. Fourthly, reject self-love and embrace self-disclosure and self-denial. You see, humility asks us to quit pretending that we're someone we're not. We are human beings created by an infinite creator to be human beings. We have limits. We don't have to be everything. And we should embrace that and not put up false fronts. That's why the critique of hypocrisy in the church can be so powerful because we're trying to be something that we're not. Live your ordinary life. It's why Paul can say that part of our message in the kingdom is to live a quiet, humble life. Open yourself up to formation of the soul. And this comes in confession and self-disclosure to a friend. It's why having friends and being in groups together is so important, not for the social activity that comes with it, but so you can confess your sin to someone. And I know it's hard, but it's the key to humility. And also, not just self-disclosure, but self-denial. We're in a country where we tend to prefer the elegant over the functional. And we tend to hold on to things privately without open hands to the person in need. There's a great rule of living for monks in the late Middle Ages, and it says, receive everyone as you would receive Christ. And we hold ourselves so tightly 
that we don't have open hands to give it. We're focused on getting more and not having enough. Amassing goods, overbuying, hoarding, these are all activities destructive to your humility and your life in God's kingdom. But prioritizing the beauty and the good, simplicity, and the just distribution of goods to those who have more needs than you do, that's absolutely essential to life in God's kingdom and to humble lives. Number five, listen much, much more and talk much, much less. God is already working on the person you have a message for long before you get there. Choose this time not to share it. God is not dependent. God's not dependent on your message. He's not dependent on my message or your message. He has already been there working. Number six, enjoy the simplicity of humility. I don't use the word simplicity there to think that this is easy or simple, but I use the term simplicity in the way we would use it for single focus. Something simple is the thing you focus on more than anything. Stop saying that I say these things because it's just the way that I am. I buy these things because it's just the way that I am. And instead, start saying there's so much more that I can be. I can be more humble and in turn, more like Christ. I'm going to ask MK to start making her way back as I have my last point. But it's always been a strange thing for me that in Daniel chapter 7, we're told that the kingdom we've been talking about is a kingdom that's now given to the saints and not simply to God himself. It strikes me as strange. And then we get to the New Testament and we're told the following from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves as a community of Christ Jesus, who although being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his advantage. How many things do we have that we can use for an advantage over someone else? But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of a human being. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a Roman cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the title that is above every title so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is not a single knee that is excluded and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father." The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is in your midst when you show love to another, when you are humble and put others before yourself, 
when you take up your cross and say, not me, God, but you. This week marks the 503rd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther understood this. Just listen to his words. Let goods and kindred go. Let them go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still. His kingdom, not my kingdom, not your kingdom, not the kingdom of Babylon or Persia or the United States of America. His kingdom is forever. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you were challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.